during the great freeze of the century last month, at any given moment during the days and nights of February 15th through 19th, all over Katy, all over the Houston metropolitan area, actually all over Texas, several thousand people would suddenly shout out, the power's on! As if no one else in their homes had noticed the lights had come on, or the appliances were humming again, or the furnace was churning out some heat graciously. Many of us said those words more than once over that cold, dark week. Because all of us had said those other words, Oh, rats, our power's gone off. On the fourth time it went off for me and my neighbors in my neighborhood, I literally went and opened the front door and stepped out onto my front little porch and said, Hey, center point, we've had our turn three times already. You let some other neighborhood have a turn. Instead, that fourth time went on for 42 hours. <laughs> so so I, I won't be going to the front door anymore and criticizing center point. Well, our ser- sermon title this morning is that happy exclamation, the power's on. And it fits another moment in the story of God and us. This moment came after earlier moments we read about in our first three Lenten sermons. The time when God created everything out of love and it was good. The time when humans created in God's image dismissed God and disappeared from God and the time when God drove them east of Eden to experience the consequences of that fall from grace, fall from his presence. We said that God permitted their rebellion, but pursued their redemption. That is true for us too. God has permitted our rebellions and has pursued our redemption, and our reconciliation. A long time ago, in the midst of the darkness, east of Eden, God began with a couple named Abraham and Sarah and a plan to make from them a people to be his servants for the benefit of the world. Their story took them into bondage, into Egypt. And they were there 400 years, growing into a vast number, literally a nation. Until God led them out with power and turned on the lights at a place called Mount Sinai. In that Sinai Peninsula, flat between Egypt and the promised land of Israel today. Our text this morning is the centerpiece of that moment when God turned on the lights 
for his people Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. Let us first pray for God to help us understand this portion of the word and its purpose for us today. Lord, we are grateful that you have spoken to us many ways over great time uh, in the lives and in the cultures of your people Israel. We are grateful that you have caused what you have said to be written by the hands of servants and that you have caused what you have written to be translated by faithful servants into languages around the world uh, it, for, for century after century. We are grateful that we have your word uh, in each of our homes and are attempting to put it into each of our hearts. Oh, you, ta you taught us that we needed your help to understand what you had spoken to us. And so we ask that this morning, as we do each morning when we open your word. Help us not only to be hearers and to understand it, but help us to employ it, to be doers of your word. And we make this our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we begin the text this morning in uh, Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. So you already see the first. I was going to ask if you knew what that text is yet. <laughs> so after we get finished with the first couple of verses, I think you'll catch on as to where we are in the Bible. So verse 1 of chapter 20 begins. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments." The third commandment begins in verse 7. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Number four. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. 
Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or husband or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Yes, those are the Ten Commandments, and they are far too much to cover in one sermon, unless you brought dinner. But the question for us this morning, in the midst of our Lenten series preparing to celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection, the question for us is, what part do these commandments of God play in the story of God redeeming the world? What purpose uh, did the Ten Commandments have in the story of God loving the world so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life? Well, there are three important observations I would present for you this morning. The first of these is the following. Number one, the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's law. They are not God's law in total. They are a broad outline, but very specific. They were often called the law of Moses, even by Jesus, numerous times, because God did give them first through Moses. And we might think of the year somewhere around 1440 B.C. to place Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula with all of those freed enslaved people of of Israel. Uh, These Ten Commandments uh, were and are an outline of many more laws given to the children of Israel in the next 20 chapters of the book of Exodus alone, but also the laws given uh, by God through Moses in the book of Leviticus, which is 27 chapters, and also many in the final book that is attributed to Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, with 37 chapters. Plenty of room for lots of laws. And some of them are uh, overarching, and some of them are specific for certain situations. True, they are expressed uh, in the terms of a culture, And none of us needs to go out and buy an ox and a donkey so that we will not covet that. Uh, We understand 
is one of the ways that God helps us to understand the words and how to interpret them from one culture to another. Now, I have another slide for you because I want you to hear these next two slides, these next two sentences. These laws of God were unique in the world at the time they were given to the descendants of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, uh, especially the first commandment was so unique. You shall have no other gods before me. Sometimes the word before, it's, it is the Hebrew word athne. And sometimes that is uh, translated besides. You shall have no other gods besides me. Uh, just because we translated you shall have no other gods before me did not mean we can have some after him. Uh, it means Literally, before me meant in the presence and knowledge of God, we should have no other gods. I don't know if many of you are familiar with a couple of verses uh, in chapter 43 of Isaiah, verses 10 and 11. I'd like to read them for you this morning. They amplify on this first commandment. Isaiah writes that the Lord said, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me, there is no Savior. Uh, I don't know why that, that little verse is not known. It is so important. It, it, it uh, clarifies any misinterpretation we might have of that first commandment. Jesus upheld the Ten Commandments and clarified them, and made them even more difficult to keep in his Sermon on the Mount. We find that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, of course. And one of those, for example, is when Jesus said, You have heard it said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister you will be liable for judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus clarified the very words that he himself was responsible as the word uh, this, the word of God being spoken all through human history, whenever God spoke, it was the second person of the Trinity speaking. Jesus, as God incarnate, could clarify and improve people's understanding of what was briefly expressed 1,500 years, 1500 years earlier.
Now, there's a second point to, uh, to make this morning, and that is this. The Ten Commandments and the laws of God are the light of God. They declare what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is false, what is just, what is unjust, what brings life and what brings death. The light of the law is the knowledge of truth. These are not arbitrary laws. They are the laws of the nature of creation. They, uh, they tell us the truth about God, the truth about creation, and the truth about human life. That is light in our darkness. And God brought that at that moment and began that revelation through to his people Israel and through his people Israel to the world. God called a fugitive named Moses, uniquely prepared for the task to be a servant through whom God would turn on the power in Egypt and turn on the lights at Sinai. The people agreed to obey the laws of God, uh, the laws of God in the covenant that they accepted from God. The people were grateful for the laws of God and praised them with such songs as Psalm 19, Psalm 119, and many others. Psalm 119, I hope most, if not all of you know, is the longest chapter in the whole Bible, Old or New Testament. No other chapter in the Bible comes close to having 176, 70, 79 verses. (laughs) And it fits right in the middle of God's Word. Two of those statements in Psalm 119 are these. Your word is a lamp upon my feet and a light upon my path. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And on and on Psalm 119 goes with every verse except two or three that have a word that means God's law. The prophets would refer back to the law again and again to call the people of Israel to repent in generation after generation. The law plays a huge dominant role in the life of Israel. And that leads us to a third point this morning. The law of God was given to lead us to the mercy of God. The light of God was given to lead us to the love of God. There is a story in the gospel according to John in chapter 8, the first 11 verses, about a woman caught in the very act of adultery. 
and she is dragged before Jesus, before other people as he is teaching, and accused right in front of a crowd that she has broken the law of adultery and should be stoned. And they ask Jesus, what do you say? And you know his words. Whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Was Jesus taking a risk? Nope. He knew that there were none there that could say they were without sin. His knowledge of that and who he was as he looked at each of them uh, disintegrated any pretense that they were sinless. And they left one by one, beginning with the eldest. Jesus revealed the truth many times that no one was ever innocent of violating the laws of God. Jesus exposed again and again those who thought they were righteous before God, and God would be lucky to get them when it was time for them to come to heaven. The Apostle Paul wrote in that letter to the church in Rome that everyone is under the power of sin, all Jews and all Gentiles. And he quotes from Psalm 14, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks after God. All through the latter part of that chapter 3 of his letter to the church in Rome, Paul presents that huge affirmation that there's no human being who had ever kept the laws of God. There was no human being that had deserved to enter into eternal life with God on the basis of the quality of their obedience to God or their love for their fellow man. And one last slide for you. Paul added this important word in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 20. He wrote, No human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed in the law, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is such an important word in all of Scripture. No human being will be justified as if they had never sinned on the basis of deeds prescribed in the law. For the law gives knowledge of sin. I think it was a J.B. Phillips translation of the New Testament that said that the law is like the straight edge of a ruler that you place to see how straight your own line of life is. And once seeing that, what is the purpose of the law? To bring us to a knowledge that we need mercy. To bring us to the knowledge that only God can deliver us from a destiny that we deserve by our life, but that God does not want for us and we do not want ourselves. 
Well, why wasn't that revealed 15 centuries earlier instead of in the time of Christ through his teaching and through the letters of Paul? Why didn't those people know that 15 centuries earlier when they were given the law? Well, they were. They were given it. They did know. For in addition to God giving them the law in Exodus 20, God gave those people there at Mount Sinai something called the tabernacle. And over more chapters than he took to give the Ten Commandments, God instructed Moses that, he, that the people were to bring gifts and to, to develop or to construct and sew a large tent where they would gather to meet and where priests who would be trained would receive their confession and sacrifices. The tabernacle was the place of God's grace and mercy. It was given simultaneous to the giving of the law. Most of us remember the, the Ten Commandments, but we don't remember the tabernacle. There in the tabernacle, they were taught to present an animal, unblemished, unspotted, uh, to represent them, to be sacrificed on their behalf. Again and again, this was played out in the ritual of worship in Israel for century after century, moving from a movable tabernacle to a fixed temple built in Jerusalem until finally God presented his own sacrifice. And all of the previous sacrifices were but symbols representing the sacrifice God himself would make giving his son to be the Lamb of God, which took away the sins of the world. Yes, when God gave the law and turned on the lights about the law, God also turned on the lights about his grace. They did know. They didn't understand at times over time until finally in Christ, the lights really came on. The knowledge of God in the law of God leads us to the grace of God and the love of God. They should never be apart, the law and the grace. The grace of God and the love of God we will see in full on Good Friday and Easter. Amen? Amen.